Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the city of Smyrna adopts a resolution condemning racism. I think that was an important message that the community needed to hear now. We needed to communicate that. A conversation with the mayor, Derek Norton, and Smyrna Police Chief Joseph Bennett. That's just ahead. But first, here's an update on the coronavirus here in Georgia. There are 53,980 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 2,329, and there are 8,974 hospitalized. Now, this is all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health at the time of this broadcast. In other news, John Ossoff is the winner of the Democratic Senate primary and will challenge Republican Senator David Perdue in November. Now, at the time of this broadcast, it appears that Ossoff has a pretty strong lead with 50.8 percent of the vote. That's with nearly all the precincts reporting. Now, WABE's Lisa Raym spoke with John Ossoff during Morning Edition, and he weighed in on the many voting problems this week. I think there's no other way to read it. This is a system that fails by design, particularly in majority black areas and low-income districts. It's, it's built such that it cannot handle a high volume of voters, a high density of voters. The architecture of the system is deeply flawed, and there's no excuse for the state of Georgia. What we saw on Tuesday was an embarrassment. It was an affront to our basic constitutional principles, uh, and it demonstrates the need for a new Voting Rights Act to secure the franchise for all Georgians and all Americans. Well, and speaking of this week's primary, what needs to happen now to prevent many of those issues from ever occurring again? Long lines, not enough voting machines, not enough poll workers, machines not working, no backup paper ballots. Well, now there are investigations being launched. Fulton and DeKalb counties are taking a lot of criticism, but there were problems throughout the state. Now the question is, how do you prevent this from happening again? And joining me now is Fulton County Chairman Rob Pitts. Chairman Pitts, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Anytime. I always enjoy being with you. Right now we're past the who to blame phase, if you will. But I do want to get your just your reflection on what happened Tuesday, not only in Fulton County, but throughout the state of Georgia as it relates to all the issues voters had at the polls. First of all, I am not going to participate in this finger pointing that's going on now. It's become a partisan affair, and I'm not going to participate in that. My goal is to fix the problem, problem, to get it right, so that voters will have a pleasant experience in August for the runoff and in November for the general election. Now, that being said, we're going to start at the top, looking at mm-hmm. the uh, absentee ballot process down through the equipment to the staffing, everything that happened, we're reviewing. But the purpose in the review is to take corrective action, make 
changes where need be to ensure that uh, that it works much better than it did. There's a lot of blame to go around. It's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, and mm-hmm. it has become uh, partisan. I'm not going to participate in that. Let's get it right. Uh, we're all in this together, and this is a democratic process, and I'm determined to make it right and to make it better for the upcoming runoff and the general election in November. Before we get to talking more about that special task force, but let's yes. talk about your leadership in the elections department mm-hmm. because it is separate from the county in a sense. So what role can you play in terms of ensuring that this process will be better next well, go around? All right, you're, you're correct. Um, and we, uh, we at Fulton County, the Board of Commissioners, we get blamed for anything that has Fulton County's name associated with it. That goes with the territory. Mm-hmm. But the facts are, Elections in the county are run by a, the Board of Registration and Elections. That is a five-member board. Two members of that board are appointed by the Republican Party of Fulton County. Two members of that board are appointed by the Democratic Party of Fulton County. The Board of Commissioners, though, appoints the chair of it. And they run the elections and not the Board of Commissioners. They hire Mm -hmm. their executive director, uh, Mr. Richard Barron, who is in charge of the process. At the state level, it's the Secretary of State Mm -hmm. who is in charge of the whole process statewide. Uh, There was a a myriad of problems that happened, which we're all familiar with. Mm -hmm. Compounding the problem, uh, new equipment uh, hadn't been tested. Huge number of absentee. In fact, I've never gotten my application to apply for an absentee ballot. Well, you're among a lot of people, Chairman Pence. I never get so, but uh, I'm not complaining. Let me tell you, I'll say this also. I went to 25 polling precincts on Election Day, and what surprised me is that the good people of Fulton County, of course they were, you know, tired and frustrated, but they were patient, they were determined to exercise their right to vote, and once they were explaining what was going on, they understood, not that they were happy, but they understood. So I have to, you know, uh, give them a round of thanks for, for being as patient as they were. Now, you go back to the previous Friday, mm-hmm. the last day of early voting, when the manager and I, again, toured every, every, I want to underscore that, every early voting precinct. We saw it was hot outside. Uh, people were standing in those long lines because they waited till the last day to vote again, which is understandable. But we actually it was a Thursday, not to Friday. We ordered tents to be set up so people would have some place to, to, you know, get shade. And we ordered at least a 100 chairs to be placed outside while people were waiting to make it comfortable for them. We Mm -hmm. provided water. And in some cases, when we had time, uh, fruit, you know, bananas, apples, Mm -hmm. and snacks so that people who were there uh, would make it as comfortable as possible because they were exercising their right to vote, which, which I support. The other thing is that those are, and the law requires this, anyone 75 of age or older, mm-hmm. they are permitted to go to the front of the line. And that also happened. All of that said, we are reviewing every aspect of it to include this task force. We'll be, uh, be bringing together to look at several, several things from a logistics point of view. You know, how many precincts do we need? Where should they be? And the law mm-hmm. will help determine some of this. Well, Chairman the Pitts, equipment. The, yes. the special task force, the special election task force, uh, 
Yes. Someone listening says that sounds great, but it, you all still have to work with your yeah, county election officials and your elections board. Is it time? We, it, is it? Let me, let me get this out. Yeah. Do you think it's time yeah. maybe for new leadership in your elections department in Fulton County, whether it's with I Director Barron or the board? I think that let us review what, what happened and what changes can be made between now and the August runoff. And I think that uh, when we all work together, I spent an hour, not an hour, 30 minutes yesterday talking with Mary Carol Cooney, who is the chair of the Board of Registration and Elections, and I emphasized to her that we in this task force are not trying to interfere with what they're doing, but to provide some construct some constructive input into to their process. And she welcome that and i'm going to be speaking to her, her board they meet in fact in a few minutes this morning mm-hmm. to say to the board that listen we want to be helpful we're all in this together and therefore and that's why i put together it well actually there are two task forces one will be an outside task force of 10 people citizens and the other will be i've directed the manager to put together a working group inside of county government to look at the processes. When the two uh, reports are in, I'll compare them, and we'll make those joint recommendations to the uh, to the Board of Registration and Election. And we're looking forward to, to we're working with them. The other thing I'll say is that the focus seems to be on Fulton County and, and, and DeKalb County, but mm-hmm. every county in the metropolitan area had the same problem. Mm-hmm. That, and a lot of it goes back to the absentee ballot and this new equipment. Chairman Pitts, you and I both know that here in Georgia, any type of issues as it relates to the voter experience or the voting process is met with a lot of scrutiny. You hear terms yeah. like voter suppression. Through your lens, could could some of these issues have been avoided? I'm not sure about avoid because the, the, a decision or the decision was made bringing this new equipment. It was new to everybody. And then we learned there's a learning curve with the new equipment. For example, the last minute, and I need to say this, too, because there are polling places that we have used for years. But because of the coronavirus, owners of those places decided in many instances at the last minute they were not going to allow us to use those places for voting because they didn't want citizens coming in who may have the virus. Therefore, they notified us, no, you cannot use this place this year. There were other reasons. Uh, uh, some schools were under construction. Uh, they had to, they were on a tight schedule to mm-hmm. get ready for uh, the school year, so we couldn't use those places. And then I'm told that six of seven of every poll worker that we had thought we were going to have, six of seven declined to work because of the coronavirus. So we had to, again... When I say we, the board had to scramble around to find live bodies to work at the polls. So it's a combination of things. And, of course, there was a heavy turnout. The protests, I think the kids who were protesting, a lot of them took the time to vote, which I think is a good thing. There's a tremendous amount of interest in this election. That also uh, helped the turnout. And the absentee ballot, and back to my situation, I still, and this came from the state, still have not received my application to apply for an absentee ballot. So I voted in person 5.30 in the morning. How long did it take you to vote? 
it, so I got there at five thirty in the morning in anticipation of the line, and it took me probably ten minutes after I was inside. I had to. It was a learning curve for me. New equipment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I personally don't like it, but it's what we have now. And with respect to the uh, when we change facilities, I'll give you one clear example. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grady High School had been a, a precinct for years. Uh, so we couldn't use Grady this time around, and we I think it was three or four precincts that were issued with the lo- previous location. So we moved to Park Tavern as a site. Well, when you get in there, the building itself, there are five precincts that were moved to Park Tavern. You get there with this new equipment, the power in the building was not adequate to support you know these voting machines so that was a problem now had we gone back to grady where it had been going had been going for years it wouldn't have been that problem but shouldn't there, the counties know this information ahead of time you wouldn't know that because we didn't find out that that well when i say we the board didn't find out they could not use some of these places until the last minute then you have to scramble around trying to find and there are legal requirements as to where uh, the polling places can be located. So, you know, so there's a lot. It sounds simple. And I'm not going to, you know, Monday morning quarterback, nor am I going to make excuses for the Mr. Barron, the director, nor the board. But my goal and my objective is to get it right for August and for November. Okay, then finally, Chairman Pitts, as we wrap up, you've got not one but two task force how confident are you that you will have some recommendations that you can work with the elections board in fulton county and director barron how confident are you that you all can get something worked out so that definitely by november 3rd but at least august 13th what happened this week will there may be some problems let's be fair about that but definitely not to the level of what happened this past tuesday how confident am i that we can't 100 percent that we will have specific recommendations and that they will be accepted by and implemented by the board of registration and elections we're also going to involve the business community because here's a is something we have uh fortune 500 companies here who specialize for example in logistics you know the ups's of the world the chick-fil-a's of the world they know how to get people in and out so they will be asked to be a part of this task force as well Give us your take. What would you do? How would you handle this situation? So we're serious about this. I want the public and your listeners to understand that we're serious. And if anyone has a uh, suggestion, bring it directly to me, and we'll look at it. That's my commitment. Chairman Pitts, when we started this conversation, you said I'm not going to get into the blame game. I'm not going to get into pointing fingers. But what is your hope that the Secretary of State's office will work with you all if you feel that they need to i think that we're all in it together and i think that once you know the you know the rhetoric um and and i have to commend the governor i heard the governor make some statements let's work this out you know there were issues but we have to do better for august and november he's saying exactly what i'm saying maybe in a different way but we have to get it right and we're going to do everything we can to get it right Fulton County Chairman Rob Pitts, we've been talking about a special election task force, actually two. Chairman Pitts, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it on such short notice. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you so much.
Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As you, the listeners, know, many of our recent conversations have centered around dissecting and analyzing the ongoing protests here in the Atlanta area. But we're going to take the conversation up 75 North to Smyrna. I'm joined now by Smyrna Mayor Derek Norton and Smyrna Police Chief Joseph Bennett. And you'll find out in just a moment why. Mayor Norton, Chief Bennett, thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. We appreciate being here. Let's begin just getting your personal reflection on what's taking place, not only here in the your area, in Atlanta area, but throughout the world. And Mayor Norton, I'll start with you. Can you reflect on this time right now and, and through your lens, how you see all of this? Yeah, I, you know, my wife Laura and I are, are hurting for all of those families and everybody affected by the events uh, happening around the country. Um, you know, we, we are um, steadfastly against racism wherever and whenever it exists. And the city of Smyrna feels the same way. And, um, you know, I think there's some conversations, deep, long conversations that need to be had uh, that will lead to change. Um, and as mayor, I'm committed to having those conversations here in Smyrna and, and, and leading to that change. So we're, we're looking forward to what's ahead um, for our family and our community. Um, Chief, thanks for the question. Chief Bennett, thank you, Mayor. And I, I echo um, the mayor's remarks. And um, I came into office as a police chief four months ago. Mm-hmm. And I came in... Uh, with a strong stance on having difficult conversations, uh, both internally and externally, realizing that um, we can only enforce laws if we have the trust and the cooperation of our community. And it goes back to the community is the police and the police are the community. Um, I feel very strongly about having these difficult conversations with the community and, you know, I, I, as uh, well as Mayor Norton, was dumbstruck by, by some of the images that I saw recently uh, on television. And I am committed to continuing these difficult conversations uh, as we move forward. Chief, let me stay with you for a moment. Those events that you are referring to, are you talking about the protests? The What happened when some of the protests turn into chaos? Or the events of where you see people of color losing their life through the interaction with law enforcement. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to be clear when you say recent events and what you're, what you've seen. When, when I talk about recent events, I, I talk about it holistically. Um, you know, where we are as a country, I, I do not see, I, I'm having a difficult time seeing through the lens of the country holistically. I look at at our community and I see one set of circumstances and I look out through the lenses of the television cameras and I see something vastly different. So trying to digest it all and make sense out of it. And I'm not speaking about one event specifically. I'm speaking about the events holistically from the virus to the protest to mm-hmm. some of the images that I've seen on television of officers in other parts of the country. I'm speaking of events holistically um, and trying to digest it all and make sense out of it and put it in the frame of reference to our community 
uh, it's quite overwhelming. Chief, do you see your role being at the intersection of all of that, what you just talked about? Is it challenging? Is it complex for you at all? If you see or if you believe that an officer has used excessive force, because that's what all these protests are about, you've been an officer. You're also in a leadership role. You're committed to the community. You're also committed to your officers. You're also committed to your own personal convictions. Do you wrestle with that at all? Uh, I have a personal mentor that, 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 that I make all decisions by and I live by. Um, and it's leadership. Are we doing the right thing at the right time in the right place for the right reason? Um, and if you ask those four questions on any given circumstance, you'll, you'll normally come out on top. It's leadership. Mm -hmm. And I'm committed to doing the right thing for our community, the right time and the right place for the right reasons. Um, if that means taking a hard look internally, that's what I, I, I intend to do. If it means taking a hard look externally and having the difficult conversations, that's what I intend to do. But I will always do what's right. Mayor Norton, you have a community that is, from a demographic standpoint, it's changed. Smyrna's demographic has changed over the last few years. We've heard that mayors and other locally elected officials can really play a part in either condemning racist or acts that might be rooted in racism. How do you see your role in all of this, particularly uh, for an area that's changing in terms of demographics? I absolutely agree, and I do represent them all people here in Smyrna, we've got a fantastic community that I'm very proud of. You know, in my role, um, I thought it was important to, um, to, to make known, just restate publicly how I feel and how this governing body feels about racism. Um, you know, we had a peaceful event here in Smyrna on Sunday um, where over a hundred Smyrna citizens got together um, in in opposition to racism. We had four of our council members there. Uh, I was there and spoke. I brought my family, my, my three-year-old and four-year-old. Um, and then on Monday, we passed a resolution. Mm -hmm. uh, so unanimously, the council condemning racism wherever and whenever it exists. You know, I think that was an important message that the community needed to hear now. Um, we needed to communicate that. We, we they, the open lines of communication and transparency in these times is so important. And um, so, you know, things like that, action items, talk, I've heard the, 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 it said many times, talk is cheap and actions speak loudly. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, you know, we're, we're on the right track, I believe. And, and some of the things that we're doing and some of the things that we have planned and the conversations going forward. So I absolutely think this role is important. Um, as we, as we navigate and, and go through this as a city together. I want to come back to the chief for a moment, and then Mayor Norton, I'd like for you to follow up. Chief, have you started to look at, or have you been looking at, from an internal standpoint, of any policies or practices that need to be modified, that need to be examined, as it relates to policing in the Smyrna community? And then I'm going to follow up, then I want you to answer, you know, are you also looking to the community for their feedback, and, and if you are going to change or review your, your policing 
how you all police in the community? Yes, going back to four months ago, um, I have stressed the importance of communicating with our community. Um, community spoken very loud and clear on, on some items. And we have uh, changed some operational, um, some of our operations to reflect some of the demands of the community. As a matter of fact, uh, prior to uh, speaking this morning, I was in my office reviewing our use of force policy. Mm. Um, yes, uh, for the past four months, it's been a continu uh, continuous review of policies, operations, um, how we are communicating with our community. And uh, there's three questions that are asked on everything that we are doing internally. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? And are we creating value? Um, if I can't answer those three questions on any of our operation, we are looking at what we can change or what we can do better to answer all three of those questions. Hang with me for a second, Mayor Norton. Chief Bennett, I want to get your viewpoint through your lens. The cell phone video footage of George Floyd, what happened up in Minnesota, correct? Through your lens, was that excessive force? Was it necessary? From my review of everything I have could find searching the internet, and I think I have a pretty clear view from the beginning of the events that unfolded um, through Mr. Floyd being taken away by ambulance. And I can say this in 25 years of policing, I've never been trained in that type of restraint. And furthermore, the policy of the Smyrna Police Department strictly prohibits any type of neck hold. Um, so I'm not sure where, what the training is in Minnesota. I'm not sure, um, what the state requires in Minnesota, nor am I uh, privy to policy sure. of many police departments. But I can say from my experience and my training that I have never been trained, nor have I ever operated that way. Mayor Norton, based on what the chief just said, and there now is a call for mayors to accept you know, a challenge to review police use of force policies and, and make other reforms. Is that something you are willing to do with the chief? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we I, I'd say for the last several years, um, there have been policies and procedures and reviews and, and other things put in place at the department um, that starts from hiring. And we've got one of the most diverse police departments, I'd say, in the state, um, all the way through training. And, and as they're performing their duties as police officers, uh, review of, of all of their actions. We have, I don't know how many chief body cameras now, but almost all of our staff is uh is equipped with body cameras and there's uh, directives that they must have them on uh, we're doing a lot of things and i will absolutely support look we're we're not perfect but we're doing a lot to improve and i always think there's room for improvement you can't rest on your laurels but absolutely um i'll work with the chief in any way i can uh to to uh continue excelling and and improving in the resolution, it reads, whereas your Smyrna Police Department has been and will continue to be honest and transparent with internal and external stakeholders and will continue to build on the culture of trust with whom they serve. That particular piece of this resolution 
is so important, and you both know that. How do you ensure to your community, to your employees, and to your police department that you can fulfill that particular part of the resolution, that there is a well, balance there? I'll, I'll start, Chief, if that's okay. I mean, we, we have a, a huge focus and have over the last several years on community policing. Um, Sergeant Lewis Defense and now Taylor has joined him uh, as his partner. Their sole responsibilities really are to communicate, be transparent, uh, be available to the community, uh, and they do a tremendous job doing that. Uh, everything that they do, all the programs, and I mean, most recently delivering groceries to seniors. I mean, they just go above and beyond, and I think that's a, uh, a key component of developing trust, because if you're not out in the community and talking to them and getting feedback, from people, then then you're not you're, you'll never have that trust. Um, and and I couldn't think of two people better suited to do those jobs than Absolutely. than Sergeant Defense and, and Taylor. Do y'all have some sort of citizen review board that is, I guess, an intermediate between the community and the police department if there are concerns or if there's an allegation of wrongdoing? How do y'all handle that? As a matter of fact, that is one of the action items that I have uh, on my notepad to discuss with the mayor um, as we move forward. Currently, no, we do not. Um, but that is certainly an action item that we're going to, to look at. Chief, as we wrap up, I, I would like for you to start answering this and then, uh, Mayor, you can chime in. Because first of all, I don't know if you even like the whole phrase of community policing, but if you do... How do you define effective community policing? And if that's not the term that you like, tell me what what is an appropriate term for you? Community policing is an umbrella. It's, it's no it's, community policing is not a specific type of policing. It is an umbrella that encompasses many different things. Mm -hmm. um, community policing uh, is technology. It is community involvement. It is enforcement. And if you want to go back to and look at where community policing started with the broken windows theory, that was a pretty much a zero tolerance policy. And um, you, to me, community policing is exactly what I told you in the beginning. The community is the police and the police are the community. That starts with legitimacy and trust. We must gain legitimacy through our community and trust through our community in order to carry out our duties. Um, so yes, uh, the, the foundation of community policing is exactly that. Um, it is uh, trust and legitimacy. And it is, uh, the, the citizens have my commitment to that exactly. Um, our operation is an open book. Mm -hmm. um, everything that we do is subject to the sunshine laws or open records. Um, and I remain steadfast in being transparent with our community in all of our operations. Um, so yes, the, in the foundation of community policing, trust and legitimacy, and um, we build upon that foundation and that is exactly uh, my intent. Mayor Norton, how do you define community policing, effective community policing? I mean, I agree. I agree with what the chief just said. You know, I'll, I'll go a little bit farther, you know, talking about my role in the city as the police and, and working with the chief is 
is paramount in these times uh, and going forward. But I, I'll just say in general from our all of our government and all of our employees through everything that we say, all of our statements and actions, uh, programming and policy making. I think it's important to, uh, in, in all of those avenues, make sure that we communicate uh, transparency, that we don't tolerate discrimination or racism in any way, shape or form. Um, and that we move the discussion forward to, to action items that will, that will help lead to change. You know, I know the legislature is entertaining uh, hate crimes legislation that's passed the House and in the Senate. I know they come back in a couple of weeks and I hope they move forward. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have had discussions here locally about non-discrimination ordinance and what that would look like and mean for Smyrna. And those discussions will continue likely after the legislature has, uh, has uh, adjourned. Um, we're talking about having community meetings where we talk about uh, racial disparities, including financial inequality, housing inequality, those types of things. So, you know, the, the, the police play an important role, no doubt, in everything that we're doing, but holistically with, with our government and, and from the mayor all the way down to all of our employees and training. Um, you know, we're, we're in a position where we're motivated to uh, move forward in a, in a robust way and uh, have these discussions. And I look forward to what we're able to accomplish as we go forward this year and beyond. Smyrna Mayor Derek Norton. I was also joined by Smyrna Police Chief Joseph Bennett. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the conversation. We appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The following... Well, there are recent headlines. Here's one. The need for foster care parents increased despite COVID-19. The need for foster families is surging amid the coronavirus. Coronavirus throws foster care system into crisis. And this one. Coronavirus leaves foster children with nowhere to go. Well, we don't talk about that now. I'm joined now by Troya Jackson of Families First. She's the foster care program manager. And Jennifer King, the executive director for Georgia CASA, court-appointed special advocates. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. You all heard some of the headlines that I was reading. I just kind of want to get your take. Are, are we seeing an increase in the need for kids to be placed in, in foster care or, or in a foster care system? Ms. Jackson, I'll let you take it. Okay. Well, yes, we have seen an increase. The referrals are coming a dime a dozen very fast for our agency. So I know if we're getting them all of the other agencies are getting them as well. So there is an increase. Jennifer, you agree with that? Yeah, and I will say our volunteers are appointed to foster care cases as soon as they enter the system. And even despite uh, us being in a, a judicial emergency that mm -hmm. we're still being appointed to cases as they're coming into the system. 
Troya, typically how are the kids referred to you all at Families First? Is it through court intervention or are you all working with families and then a decision is made that it might be best for the children right now to be in foster care? Well, actually, we partner with the Department of Family and Children's Services. Mm -hmm. So when children enter care, they reach out to agencies such as ours, child placing agencies, to see if we have uh, foster homes that will meet the needs of the children that are coming into care. After that, then we reach out to our families to try to make a connection for those children. And Troy, it may be too early to try to have the data on this, but any idea why you might see a surge during a pandemic? Well, yeah, there is a surge. Well, that's twofold. We see a surge coming in because people are staying home. Uh, you got an increase in domestic violence cases. You've got, you know, children not being able to be entertained as much because they're at home. So there's a lot of reasons why, you know, those children can come into care. Um, financial uh, burdens on families mm-hmm. that are experienced. And so with all of that, you get more stress with families. And so that could cause families to ask children to be taken into custody until they are able to be stable and maintain and meet their needs. Uh, families are also asking their relatives to take children in under some of these circumstances. And Jennifer King, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the court appointed special advocates, Take them through what you all are doing. Great. So a CASA volunteer is uh, a citizen who is interested in wanting to be a support for a child in foster care. So our volunteers offer individualized attention and advocacy. They're appointed by a juvenile court judge to any child or sibling group that's been removed from their home and is going through the foster care system. And so they have the ability to bring firsthand information to the court's attention and to all the parties really to make sure that the child's immediate needs are met and that we're really looking for that child to be able to return home as quickly as possible or if if, if, when that's not possible uh, for an alternative uh, whether that's guardianship or adoption. Our volunteers kind of come to us they might have had experience in the foster care system they might have been foster parents they might be interested in being foster parents and so It's just a great way for uh, an additional way to provide support to foster children and their families and caregivers during this time. Well, Jennifer, let me stay with you because obviously it's so important what your volunteers do, but we're in a pandemic. We've been in a pandemic for some time now. Has that been a challenge for you all? Because volunteers, their safety obviously is important as well as the children. So how are you all managing that? Yeah, so when this first happened, our first and immediate concern was the safety of our children and and their caregivers, uh, whether they were in uh, homes or in other type settings, and and then was our volunteers and our staff. Now, our volunteers will tell you that they were never worried about themselves. They were always worried about their kids. Mm -hmm. So they uh, were really creative and um, came up with all different kinds of ways to stay connected with the children and youth that they're working with. And so whether that was virtual visits, phone calls, um, texts, they would do drive-bys and wave, uh, talk about them as porch visits, whatever they could do. One of our volunteers was playing tic-tac-toe by mail with a young person that she had. She would send a self-addressed stamped envelope, Mm -hmm. but imagine what that's like to be able, that you're a foster child living in a temporary placement and somebody knows where you are, you receive something with your name on it, and somebody's always waiting for that return response to you. So our volunteers have been really great 
about uh, staying connected with the children and families, but they're also there to bring that urgent information to the court that need that might need immediate attention, or there's something significant that happened and a child is now able to go home mm -hmm. or not able to see their family, and that's that's significant as well. And we want to make sure that all of those all of those things are able to continue to happen. And so our volunteers have uh, first and foremost been concerned about um, the children that we're working with and uh, trying to do all they can. And Troya, what about with you all at Families First? This pandemic obviously has presented a lot of challenges for nearly every aspect of our lives, and you all rely on maybe home visits or site visits or visits with the families and your counselors. How are you all working through this? We have been fortunate enough that our foster families have the technology that we're able to do virtual visits. Um, they're able to um, call us, you know, we can talk to the children. They can go in the room by themselves and have privacy and, you know, talk with our case managers. Um, we're able to, like Ms. King said, we can do a drive-by to just say, hey, we're thinking about you. Um, our, our agency has been able to provide uh, supplies for our foster parents in terms of diapers, clothing, school supplies, um, those things that would bring some normalcy back into their lives. Uh, we've increased our visits just to make sure that our kids mm -hmm. are, you know, being well taken care of, even though we have full confidence in our foster families. Um, we're also in a position where we want to ensure their safety and well-being and also work with their permanency goals. Um, we always work with our DFACS, Department of Family and Children Service, case managers, any therapists and service providers, so that we can all remain on the same page to make sure their needs are met. Troya, have you all suspended or halted the process for folks who may want to be a foster parent because of the pandemic? Has that process slowed at all? Yes, it has. We have made a decision as an agency to put a hold on recruiting new families, not recruiting new families, because we're always recruiting, mm -hmm. but to be able to start the process, or even if we start the process, let the families understand that the process is going to take much longer, because it just doesn't involve us and our, our, our home study writers to complete the process. But also there's fingerprints, there's drug screens, there's other things that have to happen. Um, and right now, the state has put in a waiver for some of those things. Mm -hmm. But as an agency, we've just made a collective decision to move slow, but still move forward. And Trey, you all are, in a sense, on call 24 hours because you could get a call from the state. It could be an emergency situation. So you all are on call 24 hours, in a sense. That is correct. That has been the practice with our agency from day one. Uh, we are 24-7, and we are ready to respond to those emergency calls. Uh, we've made a clear communication to our foster parents, um, and we've been you know, having ongoing conversations with them about just how to be safe if they were to get new children that come into care, how to protect themselves and to pre protect their children. So, yes, that is true. And, Troy, you all, I want to stay with you for a moment because you all also provide family counseling. When we started the conversation and both of you talked about all the – circumstances or different scenarios that could lead to a child having to be placed in foster care. Are you all seeing a need for more family counseling during this time that we're all in? Absolutely. There is definitely more of a need, again, based on the variables with the pandemic. Families are experiencing a higher level of stress, anxiety, and depression. So our phones are absolutely ringing off the hook 
mm-hmm. for um, for counseling services, but we are able to provide that service virtually through our telemental health counselors. And either one of you can answer this question because we know the court systems at one point they had to stop all the court proceedings. How does this work now with if there a judge needs to make a decision or if there's a court order decision on something? How do you all maneuver through that? Is it all through online as well? And, and so, Rose, I can uh, talk about that. So we have 159 counties all across the state who are doing things somewhat differently. But uh, just like you said, there are courts who are holding virtual hearings where everybody is participating from their own homes or from wherever. We've uh, helped support courts in addressing some of the um, when uh, when a family member or somebody might not have access to equipment so that they can be a full participant in there. Other courts are, uh, the parties are talking in advance and really triaging which cases need to be heard immediately and uh, doing some calendaring. But for the most part, now we're starting to see most courts uh, holding those Mm -hmm. court proceedings, whether it's virtual, hybrid, or now starting to come back to court. And we expect that we'll continue to see that increase each week. Well, then here's a question for both of you, then, depending on what happens with this pandemic, you all need to make a decision. Will you return to your traditional way of helping the families and the kids, especially with the counselors and and the social workers and that personal interaction experience? How will you all make a decision that it's, it's okay to return to that operation? Well, as an agency, we are always exploring how that would look, because that is definitely a crucial part of what we do, that face-to-face interaction, building rapport with our clients. Mm -hmm. And right now, you know, the kids are having fun with the virtual visits. (laughs) (laughs) But at some point, you know, we are going to return back, Mm -hmm. but we kind of describe it as a new normal. So our agency is really definitely looking at what that looks like. So we're doing a lot of research of how other agencies and how other states are planning to move back. And since we are a partner with the Department of Family and Children's Services, we are definitely going to work with them Mm -hmm. and what um, their policies come out around moving back to uh, face-to-face interaction visits. Jennifer, what about with the Georgia CASA? Yeah, and so first, uh, for our volunteers and our volunteer training and orientations, we've gone all online, and we can continue to do that. Uh, Like uh, Troy said, our our volunteers and staff had really have had fun with that and really learned how to master the technology. Uh, we've had virtual swearing in of volunteers uh, over Zoom, and our, so our judges are supportive of that as well. But for our, our our volunteers are ready to see our to see their kids. But probably more importantly, we're really uh, like Troy has said, working with the department to really help facilitate those those family visits that are happening. Uh, that we want to see happen between kids and their families. And where we didn't want for the CASA volunteer to be the first one in the home before mm-hmm. a fam- before a parent, uh, before a child might see their parent, because we, we thought that um, that was that's really what's uh, most important here. So really trying to work with the department and other providers in the community about coming up with some safe alternatives so that those visits can happen at a regular frequency. And we know that there's so many positive things that come from regular visits, both for the the families and for the kids. Jennifer, for a second, for a listener who has some questions about 
you know, how they can be a court-appointed special advocate. These are volunteers. What's that process like? There's training you mentioned, but how long does that typically take? Yeah, so there's a great time to do it. We've had a lot of interest. There's a short orientation if you go to our website, gacasa.org, or our Facebook page, and there's a brief orientation. Uh, Our training's 40 hours. 30 hours of that is face-to-face classroom and, and virtual. And then about 10 hours of it is spending time individually with staff members, observing Mm -hmm. court proceedings, which we have to be creative about that right now. And sometimes it's observing virtual uh, court hearings and then going through our screening, our background checks, our references and all of that. But we uh, continue to to train volunteers. Like I said, this prospective volunteers have had a lot of time and interest. And so we're just trying to make sure that we provide the space to be able to bring all folks together who want to uh, really find a way that they can um, get get involved and get connected. And Troy, I'll give you the last word on this. For anyone who, whether it's a family member or someone who knows of a family that might be in need of your services, how can they get in touch with Families First? They can call our main office at 404-853-2800. They can also go on our website at www.familiesfirst.org. And we would be willing to help anybody. Um, we just, you know, we take clients that walk in off the street. Mm-hmm. So when we get those phone calls, we're able to uh, help families, whether it's providing them with diapers, wipes, mm-hmm. um, some some other assistance, please reach out to, to call us. And again, when do you think you all might be able to start the process for folks who might be interested in fostering? We are looking at beginning of July. Simply because, you know, the need is there. We are definitely doing a targeted recruiting for families that are willing to take sibling groups of three or more, as well as older children, 12 and up. So that's really what we're looking at, because those are the type of referrals that we're receiving on a daily basis. And so we want to be able to meet the community's needs and be able to assist families who are going through crisis. And we should note that Families First has been around for a long time. 130 years. (laughs) (laughs) Troya Jackson of Families First. She's the foster care program manager. I was also joined by Jennifer King, the executive director for Georgia CASA, court-appointed special advocates. Thank you both for taking the time to speak with me, and thank you for what you're doing for the community, not only during this time, but all the time. Thank you very much. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. 
New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.